This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft, that idea is made manifest. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Lauren Groff, author of Matrix. When you know a story is a good one and that you should pursue it, I think that there is some sort of electrical jolt. And how it feels in the body, it's an animal response. We'll be back with Lauren Groff after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. 
The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Lauren Groff, who is the author of six books of fiction, including Fates and Furies, Arcadia, Florida, and most recently, the novel Matrix. Groff's work has won many awards, including the Story Prize and the ABA Indies Choice Award, and has twice been a finalist for the National Book Award for Fiction and the Kirkus Prize, and was shortlisted for the National Book Critics Circle Prize, the Southern Book Prize, and the Los Angeles Time Prize. She has received fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, and was named one of Granta's Best of Young American Novelists. Her work has been translated into over 30 languages. She lives in Gainesville, Florida. Matrix tells the story of Marie de France, who is cast out of the royal court of Eleanor of Aquitaine and sent to England to be the new prioress of an impoverished abbey. Marie is taken back by the severity of her new life, but eventually finds focus and love in living collectively in sisterhood. Marie's devotion to her abbey and conviction born from her own divine visions pushes her to chart a bold new course for the women she leads while protecting their abbey at all costs. Full of ambition and desire, Marie navigates a changing world and the various threats that present dangers for the future of the abbey. We began the discussion with Lauren Groff reading an excerpt of Matrix. She thinks of running away from the abbey, of running into the woods alone and catching beasts to eat with her hands and drinking from the freshets, becoming a wild woman or a lady brigand or a hermit in a hollowed trunk of a tree. But even on this island, there are few wild places left, no place that did not at last end up too close to a village with other humans in it. No, she is caught in a great net made by her sex and the excessive height of her body, she would be easily known. She is imprisoned by her lack of English. She has been made stuck by those years of loneliness she'd already lived in secret after her mother died, when she impersonated her mother in all business because the wolves of her mother's family would never let a bastardess girl child inherit such wealth. Marie is caged into her fate by the isolation of those two years, only mitigated by busy Cecily. Marie would never want to live through the desert of her soul again. She's not built to thrive without others. Yeah, so I thought in some ways this paragraph kind of encapsulated her whole being. And I'm curious about, like, if you remember writing that and and sort of what thoughts you have about that. Yeah, it. I think it does encapsulate who Marie is. Um, I think... Um, 
she's she at the moment this is like an inflection point in her life and in her narrative in this book this is the moment when she has to really decide what she she can do and she has no alternatives really i mean back in the time when this book was set you know the um 12th century early 13th century women um were property (laughs) they were um slightly more prized property than perhaps the best horse in the stable or the best hunting dog. And they existed in order to propagate um, and and breed. And uh, Murray thrown to a convent, which in, in some ways was, thank God for convents, because they became havens for the unwanted, for women cast out of their families, for um, people who couldn't quite... Um, be what was expected of them. There's an escape latch. Um, still, the only alternative for Maria at the time was to die <laughs> or to become what she ultimately became. And so, um, and she was sort of hedged in by by her garrulous personality, her her um, her almost leonine personality that requires the love of others in order to survive. Um, yeah, you have a line towards the end too that that also um, was so beautiful that is kind of about the same idea, which says, "Open your hands and let your life go. It has never been yours to do with what you will." Yes, I think that's probably an idea that is better suited to the medieval age than the age of today, when I think a lot of um, self-direction is is asked of, of people. You know, I think it's true that Marie was enclosed in the cage of the church and her own role in it um, from an early age, and she really couldn't leave, and she eventually didn't want to. And as soon as that happened, as soon as she took the veil, and she had to take the veil, but as soon as she did, she sort of agreed to giving up her life as a self-directed um, person, as an autonomous creature in the world. And she she had to sort of take care of the people around her. And even though she resented it, she was very good at it. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you about formulating her. I have read and you said a little bit in the acknowledgments that you, you were at Harvard and you heard a lecture by this woman, Katie Bugis, And you heard it and you felt this sort of electricity. And I wanted to ask you, like, what did that feel like in your body? And does that happen very often? Or that was like there was some special relationship with you and the universe in that moment? That's such a good question. I think it's it's both. Right. I think it happens with some frequency, like when you know a story is a good one and that you should pursue it. I think that there is some sort of electrical jolts um, and how it feels in the body. Um, it is it's an animal response. Right. And, and at first I was going to say that it was, you know, it was like almost a vision. But no, your heart starts beating harder and and sort of like a light becomes tinted gold and you you feel hypersensitive to input to to sensory input in in a very real way and you, like this is how i i only understand things through my body right i think that um we are all animals right? we are we are all sort of encased in in this flesh um and my idea is definitely 
come to my brain through the body first. And so when I do sense an idea is a good one, it is, it is a thrill. It's a jolt. It's a, it, it is electric. It is this, this wild sense of possibility sort of cracking open in front of me. I, I think what can be challenging for writers is you have this electric golden jolt. How do you keep it when you're writing? That is an immense challenge, isn't it? I mean, that is the challenge. It's a different kind of maintenance of energy. I think the the first is pure input of energy. And then you have to take a step back and you have to figure out what it what what does the energy mean? It's almost trying to make the abstract concrete. It is exactly trying to make the abstract con- concrete. I mean, in some arts, that's much more direct, right? Trying to to create a painting out of a vision that you have that feels like a a more direct transliteration of the abstract, uh, making music actually come into the world, composing composing a score, suddenly you you can actually hear it. And so the abstract becomes like a more concrete idea. And writing, because our mode and material is words and words are themselves abstract, um, it possibly is a more circuitous route to the original jolt. Um, so I think, you know, I try to get out of my own way. And by doing that, I have to trick myself often. Um, I think sometimes you need to make your brain less intelligent than the story in order to get the story out. Um, and some of the the tricks that I use are actually truly tricks. And um, I'm, I'm trying to fool myself into, into, into getting out of the way. So I'll get up very, very early and start working when I'm still basically asleep. Um, so you're kind of overriding that voice in the back of your head that imp- imposes editing, imposes the intellectual brain on the work. I have to sort of physically exhaust myself every day or almost every day in order to get to a point where, again, you know, my brain is not getting in the way. And and I think a lot of exhaustion really helps with that. So like I'll go for long runs or um, I'll swim until like I can't see the world straight anymore. Right. So that's another way of doing it. I'll, if if things are difficult and I have the time, I'll take a nap and then coming swimming back up to the surface uh, of sleep um, often helps reset things and helps you sort of like get back out of uh, the sensorious brain and into the the life of the the body. The body knows everything. I think the body is the thing that actually writes. Um, the brain is the thing that actually edits. And so you want to, I want to try to um, separate them and to make them as distinct as possible. So that's like all of the bodily stuff that you reacted to in this lecture you heard. And then there's Marie. So what about Marie? We talked a, a little bit about, you know, the circumstances of her life, but you got this opportunity to dig into someone who is a historical figure and yet not much is known about her. Yeah. So I had been entranced by this this actual person since college. I thought I was going to be a medievalist for a time. I was deeply into ancien français or old French, you know, did some translations. And I discovered Marie de France Herlet in particular 
which are these extraordinary, very beautiful, fantastical short stories in, in poetry form. And um, they haunt you. I think that, you know, the past 20 years, I've often just went daydreaming or out on a run, sort of think about them and, and turn them over in my head. I have, I wanted to do something with her. I wanted to do like an actual translation, sort of like Maria Devana Headley's amazing translation of Beowulf. Um, but I didn't, um, or I didn't do it well enough to actually justify the time and energy. And so, um, I think the ground had long been tilled. And, um, also I have to tell you, Mitzi, too, the night before I sat and I heard Dr. Katie Bugis's lecture, I, I was coming back from something, I don't even remember, on a plane. And I watched this film called, um, The Women. This is 1940s black and white film. It's so brilliant. It's so good. The only characters are women. There are no men who walk on stage. But of course, it being the 1940s and the the, the I think it was written by George Cukor. Maybe I I think so. Um, and he's a man, right? And so all of the the conversations circled around men. Um, there was almost no conversation that was about the women and their own autonomy, which frustrated me because it almost felt like a missed opportunity in some ways. And then I went to this talk and these elements that had been seated first for 20 years and then for, you know, the night before this, this intense love and this intense frustration at the same time sort of met with the, the 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 ideas that Katie was talking about, the ideas of these nuns sort of um, actually having far more autonomy than historians had given them. Um, I think the, the perception of nuns at the time is that they were, you know, fairly ignorant. They didn't really do their own writing. Um, they were sort of kept under the thumb of masculine powers and, and Katie's studies of these uh, manuscripts actually show that they they were definitely involved. Um, you know, there was, she showed a picture of uh, dental calcification where lapis lazuli was in um, deep, in, deeply embedded in a nun's teeth. And that proved perhaps, I mean, the, the supposition is that the nun was involved in painting um, probably some of the illuminations because lapis lazuli is extraordinarily expensive. It came from Afghanistan, one place in Afghanistan. Um, this nun in England um, would only have been entrusted with it if, if she was doing really important work. So, oh no, not it was in Germany, I think. Um, so all of this is really interesting, right? And, and so like Katie was sort of like pushing against the boundaries of, of what we knew of women at the time in abbeys and convents. And truly, it just it was like a, just an audible click, like everything just sort of clicked in. Uh, I walked away from the book that I was writing at the time and I, and I devoted all of my attention and vocation toward Matrix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And Marie is, you know, she's basically a cast off. She was born of rape. 
She was like a half sister to the crown. She was really in love with the Queen Eleanor at the time, who was the one that sent her away because she believed that she was too too big and too ugly to get married. She she had a lot of um, you know self determination. Her mom died when she was twelve, and she kept it secret for two years and kept her estate going. She's really characterized to me by ambition. And when she went to the Abbey at first, it was a sentence, and it became, I think, her salvation. Yeah, I'd agree with that absolutely. I I wanted to ask you just kind of about her ambition because she she was not this um, docile nun who followed the rules. I mean, she came in with some power because of how she got there. So she got to rise to a position of power and she used it for good. But there's still consequences of using that for good. Like whose good is it? And I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about that ambition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that was one of the the primary questions that arose in the writing of this book is, um, how is female power within the structures and the hierarchies that um, people have internalized? How is it expressed, right? It's really, really complicated. I think Murray does her best, um, but she's also possibly blinded by things that she takes as givens, um, by the narratives she's adopted and hasn't quite pushed against or or um, questioned enough, by her own vision of herself, right? I think that she's um, she's very able. She's very intelligent. Uh, she, you know, the the women, the abbesses at the time of very powerful houses, were extraordinary and. They had to be in charge of vast estates. A, a lot of these estates were actually larger landowners than the nobles in the country. And so she, they had to be in charge of not only the spiritual lives of their nuns, not only the running of the abbey, but all of the lands that they sort of presided over. So they had to be literate. They had to be numerate. Um, they had to, to speak uh, multiple languages. They had to write in multiple languages. It was, it was just, they were the best business people ever. Um, but in order to become that, especially Marie, she felt like she had to push herself forward in a way that I think probably was not viewed as uh, moral of abbesses and of women. And so in Marie, sort of hunger to keep power, she tries to justify that by the understanding that basically no one she's ever met could do as good a job as she could do in protecting her sisters and her the women that she's surrounded by that she loves very deeply. So it's it's extraordinarily complicated, right? Her ambition is personal ambition at a time when that was not okay in an abyss. Um, I mean, at the time, I mean, in the Benedictine rule, even abbesses were not supposed to have any private space. They're not supposed to have private time or private thoughts, right? Everything was supposed to be very communal. Even letters written on behalf of the abbey should have been all read by another nun and and signed by another nun. So privacy was actually this this anathema to the idea of the community at the time. 
So um, Marie refuses some of these things in in um, and, and justifies sort of the the primacy of her ego with um, thinking that she's taking care of her nuns, which she is doing, but she's also doing some things that are actually quite um, harmful or in retrospect it, by the a 21st century view would have been harmful to the people around her. You know, one of the the elements of, of that ambition was really balancing her individual ambition and ego with the good of the collective. And a lot of this book is can make you think about the good of society versus the good of individual, whatever that society is, whether it's the nun society or the greater society around them. And I was thinking that that is also maybe the experience of writing, that this writing for you, this individual act of writing this book is solo. And then it sort of becomes collective when it goes out into the world. I wonder if those parallels make sense and, and how you feel about that. They absolutely make sense. Yeah, it's a, it's a lonely art that suddenly becomes collective, but only collective. Um, it's, it's interesting, right? Because, so the conversation around books becomes truly collective, but um, when a book is in the world, it's really only a relationship between the book and the reader, but you read alone. Uh, you know, even modified through an audiobook through the voice of a narrator, you're still reading alone because you're taking the book in by yourself. This is one of these ideas, Mitzi, that I think that I return to over and over and over again in all of my work. Um, it's one of those things that I just can't escape, even when I think that I'm escaping it. The, uh, the sort of the the pressures of community versus the pressures uh, pressures of individualism, and I think it's because I am. Um, watching with great alarm what's happening to the country and the the voices of individualism seem to be, uh, I was about to say a terrible word, um, uh, overwhelming the voices of communal effort, right? I think that a lot of the things we set up and we take for granted, free, excellent education for all children, um, libraries, um, good inexpensive sources of water, et cetera. These things um, are acts of communal good that are, I think a lot of forces now are trying to privatize, trying to make money off of, trying to sort of separate from the public good and, and make into like an individual good. And I find that that tension at the very heart of sort of the really large political issues happening now. Of course, obviously I'm on the side of the masses, right? <laughs> on the side, I believe like not only should we have excellent free public school education to 16, I think we should have excellent free publication through grad school, right? I think, you know, I think we should have healthcare for all. I mean, we if we have enough money to buy nuclear bombs, uh, we have enough money to send people, you know, to the hospital if they're having a heart attack and not saddle them with $300,000 of debt. Um, all of these things saying, uh, meaning that um, this is like a, a profound struggle happening and great relief in our um, contemporary daily American lives. And I cannot get away with from it, whether uh, it's in the news or in my own work, unfortunately. 
Well, what was it like for you when you went? I know you went to live for a brief period of time to visit um, an abbey in Connecticut and you lived with the nuns. And I'm wondering if your experience there, I mean, obviously it, I would think it influenced your work, but what did it feel like to be cloistered? Yeah, I wasn't cloistered. So, but you're right. Um, I did. I went to this abbey called Regina Laudis uh, in Bethlehem, Connecticut. It's this beautiful abbey and I am in love with these nuns. They're so cool. Um, but since they're Benedictines and they're, they're devoted to full enclosure, they do have a guest house. And if you write to the, to the mother superior and you ask her if you could visit, it's part of the Benedictine rule that they extend hospitality to you if they, if they allow you to come. And it's just a gift. Like this guest house is just beautiful. The food they feed you, a lot of it has been grown on the land. Um, they have a, a, a sister who loved cheese making so much that she went to France and got a PhD in cheese making. So obviously that's really wonderful. Um, and you get to work with the nuns. And this is like possibly you get to go to, to masses too. That's like unbelievably beautiful. I cried the whole time. It was just like the greatest thing. But working with the nuns is actually possibly my favorite thing I've done in years. Um, because, you know, I'm out in the garden sort of ripping up dead plants out of the the tomato patch. Um, I'm out chopping wood with these nuns who are maybe 80 pounds, um, but can chop more wood than any man I've ever seen in my entire life, right? Like, it's like so fun. It's so extraordinary to be working, actually working alongside the, the these nuns. And I think the thing that I was looking for when I went there was not only experiencing a mass similar to the one that my nuns would have been participating in in the 12th century, but also sort of sensing the love uh, between the sisters, the, the care between the sisters. I mean, the thing that moved me the most um, was, you know, when I did get to sit down and talk to a number of the nuns who are so smart, so open, so like loving and wonderful people. When they told me that as soon as you take the veil, as soon as you commit um, to this place, these women, um, even though there are often interpersonal issues because nuns are humans too, you will be taken care of all the way to death, right? So your sisters are the ones who are going to be taking care of you in old age. Your sisters, the people you love so dearly, you've given your life to, are, are going to be the ones sitting with you at your deathbed. And I found that so beautiful, um, so distant from our understanding of the sort of the old age and, and death in the rest of American life. That that shook me actually. I mean, it, like cu coming back to my my secular life, surrounded though I am by my family and the people who love me, I still thought, you know, if I, you know, when I die, I probably will be die dying surrounded by strangers in a hospital, and that was really sad. I mean, that was it felt like a dislocation from what was we were meant to be. Um, it felt. At the Abbey, it felt slightly closer to an ideal that possibly we've walked away from a little bit in, in secular life. You have a line in your book that says ritual creates its own catharsis. And I'm wondering if maybe some of that came from being 
being with those nuns or if it was more just something you've realized through through your life? I would say that line came out of just my daily practice of writing, to be honest. I think the ritual of writing is the thing that now I look forward to. And if a book comes out of it, that's great, right? But in truth, um, I think that the writer and the author have to be separated and have to be demarcated. Um, And I think for me, going up in the dark with my coffee and sitting down and just starting, still dreaming to, to write, that has become the ritual that has created possibly some of the, the most joy I've ever felt in, in my life. Um, it's created my daily catharsis, I think. It's, it's meditative in a certain way. You know, one of the the major acts of Marie's life is to separate her community even more from the threats of of the outside world, and also I think to create like more a more insular community of strength for the nuns within, and so much of her life's work is spent building a labyrinth where they live. And I've read that you constructed this in structure like a labyrinth. And I'm wondering if that came to you first and how that manifests when you write. Oh, Lord, no, it did not actually come to me first. So, um, the you know, the first few drafts, and I write very, very quick, very passionate, very messy drafts uh, that nobody can read, including me. And so I put them aside and start over again. So the first few drafts are really trying to get down the character, the events of the book, the um, the ideas that I was trying to, to work through. Um, and it was all very fragmentary. I had no structure. And I think that was the, the big frustration for the first few drafts. I couldn't figure out how to tell the story, how, how to sort of to, to, to create not only the, the surface structure, which is the events on the surface of the story, which is basically just Marie's life, but also how to make it feel cohesive, deeper. And um, and I kept running into this this vision over and over again. Everywhere I went, it was very strange. I, I started to see labyrinths, you know, these unicursal labyrinths. There's one in the Cathedral de Chartres, which is this beautiful cathedral in, in France, where on the on the floor um, in tiles, they, they built this extraordinary, very, very beautiful walking labyrinth. Um, where it's supposed to um, indicate sort of the the passage of a pilgrim um, to Jerusalem. And and one is supposed to meditate as one walks in and, and comes back out. And so I kept seeing this everywhere. It's all, there's, a, there's a term for this, and I can't remember what the term is, where um, suddenly you're alerted to something and then you start to see it everywhere. Um, it just kept happening. Um, and I eventually um, came across this mention uh, in a lot of the apocryphal literature about Eleanor of Aquitaine at the time that said that um, Eleanor's second husband, her second king, King Henry II, fell in love with this woman named Rosamond Clifford. And the story goes that he put Rosamond at the center of a labyrinth a garden labyrinth um, in order to keep her safe from his jealous wife, Eleanor. 
who, according to the mythology, uh, apparently found a way in and found a way to poison Rosmond, who died young. So, of course, this didn't actually happen. But the this idea sort of struck me really deeply, not only as a way for for Murray, as you said, to sort of to push against the confines of the space she was given and to separate her nuns ever further from sort of the the really noxious effects of the world beyond. But also it gave me the underlying physical architecture of the book itself through imagery. So I, I this is the way that I, I manifested it. It wasn't in story, it was in imagery that I, that I built sort of the, the deeper resonance. And I think this is something that I would hope that the reader doesn't actually notice, um, but that I noticed and I deliberately sort of played around with in order to, to make the feeling as though the reader was coming through a labyrinth. Yeah, and what you were saying earlier about sort of once you alight on something, it starts appearing everywhere. I mean, I think that's how you got to that lecture that day. Yeah, that's, you're right. But okay, you know this. I think writers know this. But um, when a project gets into you deep enough, suddenly something opens, right? It's almost like the doors of the world open. And and you start to vibe and you start to, to feel these resonances and see these resonances everywhere. And I think that a lot of my writing life is really just waiting for the, for the cracking open, right? Like waiting, waiting. F- There's this Leonard Cohen song named Anthem where he says the cracks of the way the light gets in. And I think that, you know, in the early stages of writing, um, when you're dealing with a great deal of frustration, when you don't feel like you're saying the thing that you really, really want to say, you're really just writing toward the moment when you can just crack it all open and then you go to the grocery store and um, the person in front of you wears the face of a character, right? Or um, you you jump over a snake and that becomes the the basis of a scene in your book, right? It's just, just an amazing moment. It's amazing when it feels like the world is conspiring in your work with you. Yeah, it's so amazing, too, when you're in that state, when you're writing, that something someone said to you five years ago that just stuck out, it ends up in a piece of dialogue or it ends up being like the source of someone's character. It's just like your whole life, like you're writing about Marie, but your whole life is going into that. Yeah, it's beautiful, isn't it? It's so beautiful. I think that's what we're chasing when we chase uh, these words. Yeah, it's it really is amazing. You know, something that I thought about a lot from your book because she came up a few times was Eve. I felt like the energy of Eve, that first biblical woman was in there, folded in in many ways, like sometimes literally and sometimes um, symbolically. And I just wanted to ask you about Eve. Oh, absolutely. Eve has always been one of my favorites. <laughs> I think she's so misunderstood. She obviously didn't come from Marib. She was created at the same time. I don't care uh, what Genesis says. Um, Eve, um, Eve is blamed. Um, and she's blamed for acquiring knowledge. And so she becomes the scapegoat through human history um, for the human humanity's greatest gift right if they had stayed stuck 
in Eden. They would be happy but ignorant. Um, Eve's sin of ambition, Eve's sin of uh, hunger, of questioning, of daring, liberated humans into consciousness. Right? I think that figuratively, I think it's um, she's the great hero of the story. <laughs> Um, even though she's she becomes the the one the church railed against for for a very long time, I don't you know the sin of Eve is is the the salvation of humanity if we can only harness it I think, uh, so I, she has been profoundly misunderstood as have many other figures from the church like um, I know Mary Magdalene comes up in this book. And I feel passionately toward her. I, she was the apostola apostolarum. She was the apostle of, of the apostles. Um, she was the one who sort of organized all of the other apostles. And yet somehow through the church's misreading of her, she became known as like a prostitute, which she might have been, but who cares, right? Like she was also the most powerful voice and she was the feminine voice. And so I think um, some of my like, wicked desire in this book is to take these figures and to and to and to return them to who they actually were in my vision of them. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. This is from my absolutely my absolute favorite book. Um a book that reverberates in my life on a daily basis and this is the the very end of Middlemarch by George Eliot. Her finely touched spirit had still its fine issues, though they were not widely visible. Her full nature, like that river of which Cyrus broke the strength, spent itself in channels which had no great name on the earth. But the effect of her being on those around her was incalculably diffusive. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts. And that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Do you want to share why you chose that? Um, I think the, you know, I think some people read the ending of Middlemarch as a tragedy. You know, Dorothea Brooke, who is the, the heroine, um, dreams of great things for herself and never quite achieves them. But I see it as the the quiet nobility of being a human who always strives toward the moral and the good. And um, you never know the way that your your struggle, your impulse toward good will make things slightly smoother for everyone else. And I think that that, that is, I mean, that is humanity, right? That is... Um, that is belief in other humans to the point that you um, you love them for their struggles, right? I, I just, I, I find it so profoundly moving, to be honest. Um, George Eliot always makes me, makes me want to be a better person. I love that with literature. It's a gift. It is. Can you read something you wrote that was maybe tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft? Sure. Okay, so this is a passage where Marie is very new to the Abbey. Marie wakes to Wevoa, a great dark cloud before her, and a pain in her knees because Wevoa is kicking Marie's legs with the toe of her clogs, telling her to get up, lazybones, 
It's a get-up, frail, whinging thing, that it is now Matin's up-up-up blue blood, like a bed, raw-boned, unlovely, shadow-hearted, bastard as of a false prioress, up-up-up, the magistra spies no love for God within Marie's wicked heart, and Weva will seed it there by force or see the girl perish unshriven. So um, this is like, believe it or not, I know it's a really short paragraph, but I worked this thing for like hundreds of drafts. Um, I just needed the nastiness of Webla to come through in language that felt um, appropriate for uh, like a mean, a really mean nun. Um, and it's just, you know, I just, I sweated it. And I don't know, like, I am so close to that part of the text that I can't even see it anymore. That's why I wanted to, to um, hand it over to you, because it's one of those things that in any novel, in any book, there's going to be at least a few passages where you just, they're just knots. <laughs> and you spend a great deal of time trying to unknot them. Where do you write? I write upstairs in my study, usually uh, at five in the morning to about 10 in the morning, or I write in my bed um, when I'm feeling really vulnerable, or I write when I'm on my runs. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I go into sleep, I take naps, I take baths, I um, go for runs, I go for swims in order to get away from writing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My husband is my first reader and in some ways my best reader. How have you dealt with rejection? By knowing that nobody ever does not get rejected in this life and trying to dissociate the ego from the the starry-eyed, joyous um, writer who's doing the actual work. And what is your favorite word? It depends on the day. And I was actually, I left this question up to the air and I'm going to say today, my favorite word is verisimilitude. Thank you so much for your time. I'm so appreciative. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you for being the great reader that you are, Mitzi. If you like today's show with Lauren Groff, author of Matrix, check out my first interview with her on her novel Fates and Furies, where we talked about her ambivalence toward the institution of marriage, how she drafts her novels, and the survival benefit of mirror neurons among family members. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 315 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Rebecca Solnit, Evie Wild, EJ Levy, and Charlotte Wood. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. 
please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.